we've had it. Hello, guys. This is Robert Yoho, and it's this is the Surviving Healthcare Podcast. And I have two of my close friends here, um, May and Tim Hindmarsh. Hindmarsh. Hindmarsh, sorry. Get it right. Third time you're <laughs> <charged. laughs> Anyway, um, they're in their home studio and they're going to tell us about their practice. And they managed to treat COVID properly and do the right thing for their patients the entire last two years. And they're in Portland, Oregon, of all places. So they managed to get through the politics up there, right? Well, not Portland. I, I denounce myself to be ever associated with Portland, Oregon. Sorry. But- are from Oregon, and we basically say we're in the Willamette Valley. The I-5 corridor between Portland and Eugene is the, the best. We're two hours from Portland, so. They're, they're wonderful Canadians, and we love, our, we love our Canadians in America. They're like Midwesterners. They're idealistic. They talk and speak as they mean, and they're, they tell the truth and so on. So that's my feeling about you guys. Well, what you see is what you get with us yeah. and what you hear is what you get. Yeah, we're we, pretty transparent and we're like this at work and we're like this with our colleagues and friends. I mean, just we hope that we're just down to earth, honest and keep it. I think we're more like the Canadian truckers, though, than, <laughs> yeah. than like a blackface. So. So so you guys um, tell me about your practice before we uh, start in on any of our rants and we could rant all the whole session. But tell the viewers or the listeners about your experience during the covid and how you figured it all out and so on. Okay, so I I can start, I guess. Um, So we had worked in in two corporate uh, jobs, uh, one for 25 years and another one for about two. Uh, We were at our last corporate gig for uh, working urgent care when COVID hit. And your family practitioners. Uh, yeah, family practitioners doing urgent care. So the thing that was interesting, I thought that actually this, you know, because nobody really knew what to do. You know, there's directives from the, you know, the CDC and whatnot. And, and, and nobody really knew, okay, how do you run a medical practice during COVID? So that actually was quite interesting. And I thought that this organization we worked for did a pretty good job because what they did is they separated all the respiratory patients from all of their regular patients. So because we were doing urgent care, we basically were burdened with dealing with all of the respiratory people. And so we did tons of telehealth and, and most of it was, you know, this kind of nothing works. Give me a call or go to the ER when you turn blue. I mean, that's where we started. And that was the beginning of the journey. And then, you know, looking at MRNA technology, I'm like, well, this is super fascinating. I mean, we might be able to treat, you know, diabetics with this, you know, you implant a a gene for insulin or you implant a digestive enzyme gene and you might be able to treat cystic fibrosis. Like I was pretty excited about all of this and I go, and what a cool way to be able to make vaccines on the fly. So that's where we started. And then, and then I started to get the wafting stench of the dumpster fire that was down the street when the original Pfizer data was or the, the article was released on how they got the EUA. And I, I was kind of like, what the heck is going on here? They, they had, they, you know, they, they did a study on what, 43,000 patients, and they only had 200 cases of COVID, you know, 168 or whatever it was in the, in the uh, um, non-treatment group, in the, in, in the placebo group. And like, you know, they had eight or 20 in the vaccine group. And so there was a, there was their 90% effectiveness. And I go, well, this is less than 1%. 
So you're telling me in the very middle of the, the pandemic in 2020, when they did the study in July of 2020, there was, there was only 1% of people that were getting COVID. Like that doesn't, A, that doesn't make sense. And B, their numbers are so infinitesimally small, you can't say anything about this. So I started asking some of my evidence-based medicine friends, and it was just an absolute cricket-a-thon, like nothing, you know, because the vaccine's good. And it was just kind of pre-baked, and I go, this doesn't really make sense. Now, I didn't think it was particularly dangerous at that point because we had zero safety information. And so we actually got Pfizer um, in January, and and then we went back to work. And we started seeing vaccine side effects at a rate that absolutely horrified us. I mean, I'd done family practice for, I did obstetrics for 12 years of my family practice career. So I had tons of babies in my practice and I gave away, you know, we did thousands and thousands of vaccinations. And in 25 years of medical practice, well, 30 actually of medical practice, I saw more vaccine side effects from that COVID vaccine in three months than I saw in 30 years in totality. And and we're like, and that's when we're like, holy crap, what's going on here? And we started really digging into other research. We were fortunate enough to be able to interview on our podcast, Peter McCullough, and then Harvey Risch and Paul Alexander a couple of times. And we're like, all of a sudden, literally, we are on the Damascus road and the scales were falling from our eyes. And I, I'm going to jump onto that and add the other thing that was happening at the same time, you know, because like Tim said, this new technology comes out, it seems pretty good. We, we were on board with it initially and like everything in medicine and science, it's always evolving and changing and, you know, you're testing theories. I mean, so we, we got vaccinated uh, in January of 2020, right? Did I get that right? 2021. 2021. Sorry, my bad. Yes. Um, but while we're doing the urgent care clinic and by default now becoming what we call the COVID clinic, because anything with any COVID symptoms is, was sent to us, whether it was a kid with ear pain that could it was just a basic earache to someone with shortness of breath from their CHF, they had no way of triaging and knowing. So we're seeing nobody else is treating it except for you in that area. Correct. It's like, oh, it's a symptom of COVID. We won't see it. It has to go to this, the clinic. We were at the COVID clinic, we called it. And so there there was seeing people in clinic as well as um, seeing actual sick people and doing telehealth with these people who are frightened. People don't have COVID that are still frightened. Um, and as the technology, you know, is still coming out uh, about the vaccine, whether it's going to be effective or not, and what the studies are showing. The other thing that really stood out to us was, A, you know, that I would say, well, two things. The coward, not I, would, I do call it cowardice of other physicians to actually see people that knowingly don't have COVID, we would say, no, they don't have COVID. We've tested them. We've seen them in person with all the PPE on. It's like, you know, like, it's like we're in zombie land with this full PPE and they have CHF and they just need to be seen in the clinic. Well, no, it's still, you know, we're nervous. I'm like, since when in the history of being a physician and in training, were we this afraid to take care of our patients and ones that aren't even a a danger to us. But the second thing that was yeah, you're, really, you're a 35 year old marathon running cardiologist and you're scared of your 80 year old lady with shortness of breath. Yeah. Like I call, no, it, yeah. I call so, it the, I call it the chicken S H I T club. It, yes. it, 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 
became yeah. like really overwhelming to me. And I'm like, I'm really not that old. Although we had been 28 years into it that I'm like, am I really dating myself? And that the new, this is a new generation. It was old generation. It's just frightened. I, I don't get it. So the other thing we, that really bothered me though, was uh, the whole telling people, sorry, we'll screen and test you for COVID isolated home for 10 or 14, or it kept changing by the you know, week, what to do the protocols. And there's nothing we can do for you. Call us if you're O2 sats, you know, or below 90 or your fever is over 103 or you can't breathe. Otherwise don't call us kind of a thing. And, and so I thought to myself, when in the history of medicine, have we ever told a patient there's nothing we will try to help with your symptoms, A. I mean, we see people with sore throats or the flu, really bad cases of the flu, and we're like, okay, do you need a decongestant or cough medicine to help you feel better? Uh, I tell everybody take coldies, add some vitamin C and zinc, get your chicken soup. You need an inhaler, maybe if you're tight and wheezy, I'll give you one. Do you want a steroid for your nasal congestion? I mean, anything to supplement and add adjunct to your immune system and healing. Um, the whole, the whole time it was like, nope, nothing. You can't, you know, talk about anything else. It's just sit back and wait. And that was, that blew my mind that we would do nothing until it was almost too late in hospitalization. I mean, so that was frightening. And then as time went on and more data is coming about across the world about the use of potential agents such as ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine or high dose zinc, uh, adding doxycycline. I'm like, well, why not? We've been using this medications for years and decades, and we use everything in medicine is often off-label, meaning, you know, you take a beta blocker, which is normally a blood pressure medicine, and you can use it for migraine. You can use these anti-malarial drugs like hydroxychloroquine for autoimmune conditions. I mean, I'm on it. And so why can't we just add it to people to try because we know it's not going to do any harm and it might do good. Oh and, no, and yeah, it might do harm, even though people with rheumatoid arthritis have been taking it for decades with yeah. daily. So that happened, and I'm like, this does not make sense. Why would we prohibit us from doctors from trying everything? Because we did it with HIV, we threw every, the kitchen sink at everybody. The the flags went off, and the final tipping point I think for us was in Oregon the pharmacists were allowed to block any kind of prescriptions written by a physician for hydroxychloroquine. They had the power to say, no, I will not dispense it Which to the is, patient unless they have a diagnosis of auto. Right. But if they're, if they're looking for a diagnosis to prescribe a medication and they're deciding whether they get it based on, then they're practicing medicine without a license. I mean, yeah. that's the definition so, so, of practicing So that's medicine. exactly right. I'm like, how are they giving pharmacists the license to make a medical decision? Um, and, and, but B, it was really the states blocking it. And I'm like, something else is going on if there's all this blockade to do nothing except a vaccine, then there's a lot of effity going on in the world, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, I get well. The next thing that happened on, in our COVID clinic journey and what we've been doing then is, um, uh, where would we go, Tim, with the story? As time so, evolved, we ended up leaving that. Yeah. So actually, it turned out it turned out really great because we left we left our second corporate job, 
and we uh, joined a, a former resident of ours who wanted to start a private clinic. So, yeah, about a year ago. So he starts this private clinic and we said, yeah, we'll come, you know, we know one in the community will try to lend you a little credibility or whatever. And so at that point, um, that was just after Texas and Florida had basically set up pup tents all over their state and started dispensing monoclonal antibodies. So I had been doing, you know, we'd both been doing a ton of research on monoclonal antibodies. And I'm like, this stuff is really crazy. Like, it's super easy to administer. Like, Regeneron, the stuff that Trump got, you can give it subcutaneously. Like, you literally should be, you know. You, you could do a home, home visit. It's, it's just the antibody. Okay. There's no spike protein. There's no vaccine. There's no mRNA. There's, like, it's just, you know, and we've been using monoclonal antibodies in all areas of medicine for decades now. I'm like, this is really cool stuff. So somehow by, like, magic, the ultra- blue state of Oregon decided that they would start dispensing monoclonal antibodies. So our little dinky clinic in a town of 11,000 people decided we'd just ask, like all they can say is no. Well, they started sending it to us. Yeah. So we started treating people and we started treating people aggressively and we became really successful. You know, we had people coming from, you know, Vegas. Wow. Nine, Idaho. Idaho. Because they knew they could California. get, they knew they could get treatment and they knew, they knew, they knew two things. One, we would see them even if they were sick because we weren't scared of COVID. And number two, we would treat them if they you know, met the criteria for treatment. And, and three, if they didn't meet the criteria, you know, they weren't going to get sick enough where monoclonals made sense, we would tell them other things that they could do. And so it was fascinating. Like I really felt like I was a member of the French resistance in 1942 because, it, you know, one of our colleagues that we work with, he's like, well, we should be doing more ivermectin or more hydroxychloroquine. And I go, why? All it's going to do is attract attention and we're going to get shut down and it's not going to work. I said, the state is giving us EUA approved drugs that work better than probably any other drug for COVID. They're continuing. These drug companies are continuing to develop new versions as the variants come. And I said, the effectiveness of the French resistance is not punching every Nazi you see in the nose. It's to it's to have them think that you're a Nazi while you infiltrate them and undermine them. <laughs> How many days does that stuff help after the onset of symptoms? It uh, depends. Um, it depends on the, the match between the variant and the monoclonal. So, for instance, um, what was it? Was it uh, there was citrovimab? was the one that worked best for the original Omicron mm -hmm. variant. And it was pixie dust. Like it was literally, if you had Omicron and you know, you're 75 and you have a bunch of medical problems and you could potentially get really sick. Uh, Citrovimab worked with Not in like 12 hours. Wow. Well, no, with Omicron. Oh, with Omicron. That, that was Citrovimab. Regeneron worked really well <laughs> with the, with alpha oh, and delta, because yeah, yes. we basically, by the time we started treating people with monoclonal antibodies extensively, I mean, we're doing 10 and we're doing 10 infusions a day point. And it was absolutely staggering because it, it worked, uh, worked about two or three days. Yeah. And I mean, you had to give it um, within a 10 day window, but, but the earlier, the better, the earlier, the better. So we would have people come in and they would, you know, it's like day two of symptoms, day three. I'm like, well, I'm not that sick. And in our experience, we said often we noticed that the tipping point was about day five to seven, that a lot of people will be ticking along and just kind of feel kind of crummy, low grade fever, not that bad. They don't have no shortness of breath, 
just kind of like a mild flu. Um, but what would happen is then we would see people come in around day seven and then just tank. And then the effectiveness of the therapy is not as good. Well, May actually got Regeneron. How many days were you into it when you had Delta? Two. I was really, I got sick hard and fast though. But so we would recommend to people when they came in, we would give them the options. We, you know, we would say, here's what we have. This is what's available. We use the FLCC (laughs) as well. Big time, you know, handing that out and recommending which nutraceuticals to take and what we would recommend based on their um, medical history um as well as you know aspirin is a being an important thing. yeah the aspirin was a big deal yeah. and that was almost entirely ignored because there was a pretty good study that showed that if you take full 325 milligrams of aspirin right at the beginning of symptoms it it lowered your hospital two to three weeks yeah i told mm-hmm. patients a minimum of two weeks yeah we would do two for most what about steroids you give them oral steroids, you give them a triencephalon yep, shot or something. So, so our protocol was, you know, you come in and you're sick and, but your O2 sat's good. And, you know, you might have a fever, you might not. And you meet a criteria because you have, you know, you're obese or you have asthma or whatever the, you know, concomitant condition is. So then you get, you get whatever flavor of the month works as we, far as the monoclonal yeah, antibody. So we'd offer that. Uh, some people, there was a few, you know, maybe five to 10% that would decline. Um, and then they would do and, eye and mask yeah. protocol, but most others we would say, you know, you can do whatever you want. This is, you know, we don't see almost, we had almost no reactions or side effects. A couple of people that needed some Benadryl after, but for the most part, yeah. it was like, why not? If you know, it's going to reduce sure. your risk from hitting the tank at day seven. So, yeah. So, so if you met criteria for monoclonals, you got monoclonals and then you got aspirin 325 a day for mm-hmm. two weeks you know, plus the vitamin D and the zinc, which most people were taking anyways. Uh, we used the vitamin C as well with crescetin. And then you, yeah, depending, there, there was would, a point though, where add on a few things, but you have to be careful. Cause then it's like, you're giving people so much stuff. Uh, you don't, you know, then they're yeah. going to get GI upset and more symptoms. And uh, as far as adding the doxycycline, azithromycin, the omeprazole, it would just be a case by case thing, depending on their health history. Now, your, uh, the steroids as well, you know, not everybody we would give steroids to, it would just depend. Yeah. I mean, if they were dumping their sats, yeah. if you were concerned they had a pneumonia, then they would get an, they had reactive so. airways disease or predisposed yeah. to that, you know, asthma or airway issues. We would do that as well. How many patients a day were you guys seeing each? Oh, oh man, we were seeing, I mean, it's all like a tiny, and then we're a startup, right? I mean, so yeah, we yeah. Had zero, like zero patient load going into this and we would see, we would see up to 20 COVID patients. A day. These are pretty sick patients. Everyone's new. How much does that stuff cost? And the government paid for it, but you know what the retail price that the damn pharma companies got? It's no, I wish it was $10,000 a, a dose or something. Find that. I'm sorry. Yeah. No idea. No, not a, not a sniff. I mean, it's an infusion of monoclonal antibody. You see what they pay, what retail is for most monoclonals for other diseases. And it's 10,000 plus per and dose. That, I would have to say the irony about the whole thing is so our hospital, uh, the our l- close by hospital system near to us um, did have some monoclonal antibodies. We heard from some patients uh, say that, well, I went to the ER and they said I wasn't sick enough to get it, but my relative or friend, you know, was super sick. And so therefore they gave it to them and they were kind of rationing it, actually not 
Yeah, and yet or, early, or they're making appointments. <laughs> like, I mean, it was completely insane, right? Like they're making up the people would go in and they're sick and they're sick enough and they meet criteria. Well, they got to be treated at that time. Like that's right, the yeah. time you treat them, right? Yeah. But it's like, oh, come back in three days. Well, no, you're <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're having an acute MI, but we can't get you into we can't get you into you know, you know, so we'll schedule your stent in you know five days. I mean, you just like that that's yeah. Canadian that's the Canadian healthcare system. <laughs> Like good grief. No, it's just it was crazy. But it Plus, was almost- no one wanted to see sick patients. That's no. what totally pissed me off. Like, you know, this guy comes in, he's a super nice guy, he's got a great job, he's got a cute little four-year-old, and it's like, well, no one will see my daughter because she might have COVID. And I'm like, well, or who cares if she has COVID? How many doses of monoclonals did you get? Did you give patients total? Do you think? Uh, all but, I can see is the fridges packed full with I mean, how many did we treat? How many? Yeah, how many patients did you treat over a period of six hundred? I thought it was close to a thousand. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's yeah, crazy. in a town of eleven thousand. <laughs> I mean, it's ten yeah. percent of the town. Wow. Right. And the interesting thing too um, about the whole treatment thing is that early on, so we live in a very um, sort of red county, and one of the most highly unvaccinated counties in the state, and so early on. We were seeing, you know, we would ask, it's just a data, you know, observance collection. Are you vaccinated or not? It was no judgment type of thing. Most everybody initially was unvaccinated for COVID, meaning no va- no vaccines at all. And then as time went on, we started to see more and more people that had been vaccinated, had been boosted, were now then coming in. Sick, so, sick as hell because yep. yeah, their, their immunity destroyed. Right. And so at this point it's just an even wash oh no it's more than that i would say no it went it went it went 75 25 unvaccinated to vaccinated uh during delta when we started treatment which was with regeneron and then it went to about 50 50 at the beginning of omicron and now that everyone's double and you know where there's tons of double and triple vaccine vaccination it's it's virtually all vaccinated people yeah that that are getting sick because you know, and it makes sense, right? Because the people that that never got COVID initially that didn't get vaccinated eventually got Omicron, virtually everybody in the population, or they had some mild case or whatever. So they had natural immunity, so they were largely good to go. They might have got Delta and then got Omicron later, but who cares? It wasn't, you know, it was mostly a cold. But now where with this sort of, you know, original antigenic sin where you're immunizing and re-immunizing somebody to an extinct virus and, and pushing the evolutionary, you know, mutations to escape variants. Now it's like, you know, now people ask me, I, I used to recommend, a, you know, the data was still there. People were still not getting as sick and not dying during alpha and Delta if they were vaccinated. So there were some people with really bad health conditions. I said, I would recommend vaccination at that point. Now it doesn't matter who comes in. I'm like, absolutely do not get another shot. You want, you want that thing out of your body now because it appears to have negative efficacy. Like that's the part that's so crazy. You know, that seems obvious to any rational observer and the criminality that has surrounded this thing has, has burned the credibility of anybody talking about details to the ground. I don't know how anyone can talk about this thing in any context other than uh, an evil bioweapon. 
you know, along with the original COVID, which was manufactured also. I mean, it, it's just, it's a stunning situation. And uh, and the, the, the idiots who are still talking about, uh, well, maybe we should still vaccinate those over 65 or something like that. I mean, if you want to kill them, go ahead, destroy their immunity. There are a larger chance that they'll get the severe form of COVID and die of that, as happened to several of my friends. But it's and, and the thing about pushing it on the kids is what boggles my mind, the kids and women of reproductive. But you know where that comes from? Uh, calling the herd. I don't know. Well, it might, but that's, you know, if, if, but there's a practical reason for that. So, you, you, you know, community, which is the slightly different version of the Pfizer vaccine has already been approved by the FDA. So they could sell community. They, they can, they can sell it as a fully approved vaccine because it's fully approved, but they won't. And there hasn't been a single, I don't think there's been a single dose of community that's been used in the United States. They're using all of the EUA vaccine. And the reason they're using the EUA vaccine is because they have liability protection. So my understanding, and again, I could be wrong. If somebody wants to prove me wrong, that's fine. Is the reason they're going after kids is if, if the vaccine becomes a mandatory childhood uh, vaccine, then it extends their liability protection. And then they can take their fully approved community and just give it to everybody. Well, so yeah, yeah, I've heard that story, and I think it's true. I mean, we're we're all hoping that these court cases that are being pressed. Uh, there's a fellow named uh, who's who's got a hold of the uh, attorney general in Utah. Um, this uh, fellow from Florida, um, I, his, I'm blocking on his name, but he's supposedly uh, has, uh, a lot of pot, a lot of Latipo, something like that. The, no, the no, he's that's the health commissioner in Florida, but there the. Uh, the, the guy, David Martin, is pushing the case in, in Utah, and we're all praying that one of these cases breaks open the logjam so we can just utterly destroy all these people that have pushed this uh, dystopian uh, bioweapon on us. That's my feeling about it. I'm not shy about telling my feelings. Well, no, and, and the thing is, the thing that, well, we interviewed Sasha Latipova. I'm not sure if you know who she is. And um, that would be another guest you would love Mind to have on your show or, or you can repurpose our episode yeah. and put it on yours because because that, that episode, I mean, we've interviewed some really cool people like, you know, top field dragster champion who's had medical problems in the past. And, you know, Eddie Braun, who is a stuntman for 43 years and, you know, all about his injuries and his ability to take his gigantic man-sized testicles and put them into the cars. <laughs> and crash them. and, and um, I'm telling you, Sasha was probably the biggest mind blower because she had run two pharma companies um, that were the subcontracting pharma companies that that do research and then take the research and present it to the FDA. So just as kind of a little background for your listeners, how pharma works is you have a gigantic pharma company like Lilly or, you know, Pfizer or whatever, and they own a molecule. So they own molecule X and they think molecule X because of basic research does some something. Okay. Uh, and, but they need to prove it and then they need to prove it to the FDA and they need to get approvals. So the big pharma company is, is essentially a manufacturing and marketing system. They're not really a research system. So they reach out to these subcontracting companies and the subcontractors, you know, recruit the patients and produce the study and then take all of the data and synthesize the data and then present it to the FDA. So these people are intimately involved in understanding exactly what they have to say to the FDA, how they have to say it, you know, whether they cross their legs with their right leg on top or their left leg on top, and they 
button up everything and they have the T's crossed and the I's dotted. Well, Sasha was very successful and owned two of these companies. So she, and you know, she has since retired from that industry. So she got her hands on the first 400 pages of the FOIA requested hard data from Pfizer. And she started, you know, she has a small team still. She started researching through this and she was like, they didn't do any safety studies essentially is the bottom line of that interview. And she goes like line by line, verse by verse, as far as, okay, this is what should have been done in a normal study because that's what regulators would normally want. But this is what happened. And the thing that's really crazy that should really freak people out, um, you know, Pfizer is guilty, you know, was charged and paid what, 3.1 billion in one case. They've been, they paid the highest fines for any commercial entity in the entire, at least in the, to the United States of any commercial entity in the entire world. So expecting Pfizer to be entirely above board, it's easy to go, yeah, they probably are going to fudge some stuff. The thing that was amazing is she's like, clearly the FDA was in on this. I mean, the FDA was just turning their head. I mean, the way I put it is I said, Pfizer's having a drunken frat party and the FDA is backing up the beer truck. And that really and is what she found. And that's 400 the, pages. During the and there's 90,000 pages of raw data to come out. And during the hearings, Pfizer didn't even send their own attorneys to represent. It's the FDA attorneys. The FDA do it. So, so Tim, you, you're, you're such a nice guy that you give these people a benefit of the doubt. Actually, what a research subcontractor, 75% of the research subcontractors are out of the country. And my vision of these people is that they're a kid with a baseball bat in a base, a baseball cap in a basement in Pakistan. That's the level of people they're dealing with. I mean, it's, 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 if it wasn't so sick, it'd be laughable. I mean, they're, these guys, they, they've sort of given up any pretense of doing any science about this stuff. And we can see it there. They give up any pretense of even faking the papers. And now, you know, the studies show higher death rate for the vaccinated group because all the heart attacks they had um, than the unvaccinated group in some of these studies. I mean, it's, it's insane. And then, then they claim that they had got less COVID. So the relative risk has improved. I mean, my, my feeling is the details like uh, what's going on uh, in terms of the, that we have enough proof to string these people up already. It's just a matter of figuring out how we're going to do it. And I, I'm I'm praying for these attorneys, and I'm not a great fan of plaintiff's attorneys because I've had experience with them. But I'm 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 hoping that our system is robust enough so we, we don't go down Canada's road. I mean it's 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 just dystopian what's going on. And I, I appreciate you guys uh for treating were you able to give some prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin or you refer them to Canada sources or call, tell them to order it from India or something, or what'd you do? We had some local nearby sources that people could utilize. And so we, uh, a couple people that we worked with at the clinic did go, kind of go out in that limb. Um, we, I didn't, Tim didn't, mostly because it was like, we have this massive source of monoclonals that are working well. Yeah. With the FLCC protocol. We didn't want to put jeopardize this like almost god-given gift that dropped on us that's great have that taken away and so we knew how to connect people with sources to get yep. it if they really wanted to add that to their armamentarium as well well that's i mean that's a charming story i i don't have a horse in this race i retired a year before this whole thing started and i was busy writing my corruptions books and i i couldn't even understand it 
despite that background. I mean, the whole thing is stunning. And actually, these pharma companies, they manufacture the disease, they manufacture the panic about the disease, and they manufacture medications. And whether it has any relationship to treatment or not is, is an open question in many cases. So the, the, the whole thing is a lot more uh, fraudulent and evil than, uh, than you nice Canadians would, would put a spin on it. That's but what the, I The panic and fear is really you know, been the thing that's kind of caught my attention too, and how it's, I mean, still being used, still, uh, gosh, what's going on in Canada right now, still boggles my mind. We had family come visit us yesterday, and they are moving to Texas from Canada, but I I did not realize that Canada is still locked down in the sense that you cannot leave, you cannot fly anywhere if you are not fully vaccinated. You, you're just prohibited to leave the country enter the country you can't forget on a plane forget the mask it's a long it's a long border may surely there's a few trails through the woods do get put on your backpack and find your find your way out and bring and your it, gun if case you have to a lot of border. funny and deer trails across some of those no no there, there there is my there is. my father grew up on a farm that was bordered the u.s in southern saskatchewan and like you know you they could walk down in the field and see the little you know, 30, 39th parallel post. And uh, yes, there was people that were, uh, imp, shall we say, importing large barrels of liquid. <laughs> uh, but what boggles my mind is, okay, you know, the size of Canada, the landmass is huge. The population is what, not even the size of California anymore. Yeah, it's like, and, 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 and so people are mostly sp spread out other than the main urban centers but the whole thing of this fear of you know we got to protect everybody because if you're not vaxxed and wearing a mask we're going to all infect one one another and hence the demise of the canadian well and the, the fact is man you know, it, the, the fear up there is uh, still unreal oh. you know, I, I'm, I'm all for free freedom of choice you know if you're really fearful and you feel like you need to wear a mask everywhere in your car at the grocery store on the plane that's your choice and it should be your choice but it, to be mandated and to be controlled and the vaccine passports that you know that they had to have even to go in a restaurant or uh employment i mean yeah i just, I, I don't i don't even know what other country like, in the world i mean still it's has still that. an experiment like I, I would get in discussions with people that disagreed with me and I, i'm like you're part of a freaking experiment like don't you understand that this is an experiment oh you're too kind the experiment is over we know the story it's a it's a bioweapon it's an evil, I, I, evil I have this discussion you know months ago and i go it's an experimental agent you cannot mandate it and then and then they bring up these idiotic comparisons like well it's polio it's like polio and i go this is a similar Polio and COVID are as similar as comparing the athletic achievements of Usain Bolt to Stephen Hawking. <laughs> well, they're both adult males. Yeah, but one guy has ALS is in, in, in a wheelchair and the other guy is the greatest sprinter that's ever lived. I mean, you know, just because a vaccine for polio works doesn't mean that you you make some COVID thing and you put the name vaccine on it. And it's, I mean, it's just and, and these are physicians I'm arguing with. And it's just like. Are you are you kidding me? Like, really? What about the AIDS vaccine? Oh, that's right. What about the RSV vaccine that actually killed kids? Where's that one? Oh, that so, hasn't. Doesn't I'm, I'm curious about your relationships with your peers up there, because I haven't had much to do with physicians except for people that are fully red pilled uh, for years, for three or four years. 
So what are what are these what are these uh, ignorant uh, physicians? I mean, these are these are the brightest large group we have in America. There's a, a million of us. Average IQ 135. And and why why and so what's it like with these jackals oh, out there? Conversation you had with the OBGYN. Oh boy, that was that was delicious. So I'm, I I I got trapped in the I got uh, long story, <laughs> but I, when we were, when I was when we were on the East Coast last. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, I got trapped in the Norfolk airport for nine or 10 hours because of some travel issues. So I start talking to some these like just some random people and they're asking me and I said, well, no, I wouldn't get vaccinated now. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. You know, it's Omicron, blah, blah, blah. Like and the risks, the risks are incredible. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I don't want to. I don't want to get a heart attack. I don't want to get myocarditis. I don't want to get Guillain Barre. I don't. I don't want to have a neurological disease the rest of my life. Right, well, but to to dial. quickly to that point, locally, I mean, most of the colleagues that we, when you talk about that, they say, "Yeah, that risk is low compared to the risk of hospitalization and death." Yeah, that's, well, that's but, what it always comes back. Well, to. and 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 even if it was, and how do you prove you know, that? Well, and you can't, and with Omicron, it clearly isn't. So. So at any rate, it was fascinating because then this other person joins into the conversation, right? Because, you know, the the knight in shining armor, actually a really nice lady. And she's an OB, OBGYN picking up her son there. And she's like, are you in healthcare? And I said, well, yeah, I'm a doctor. I've worked in a COVID clinic for the last two years. And so we get into this and she's like, well, name me one thing. And it was fascinating. She's like, well, name me one virus that, that's been eliminated that, that was it was 100% always a vaccine. And I said, well... Hot, like you know and she's comparing this to smallpox and polio and all that. and i said well that's true but i mean i said this is a different virus i mean this is a you know a, a virus with a fraction of the base pairs compared to polio or smallpox i mean smallpox is probably the biggest virus that's ever infected human beings and and i said it's entirely different plus it's a pandemic of of a tiny virus that's spread in the air so its mutation rate is like off the freaking chain, right? You know, you change one base pair in, in smallpox doesn't do anything. You change one base pair, you know, a couple of base pairs in COVID, the chances of it actually having a material effect on the virus is much higher. So, you know, I'm trying to give her, the, I'm being very, very cordial and I'm trying to give her a little virology primer. Well, you know, all of the pregnant ladies that we had that got, that weren't vaccinated, um, they're the ones that got really sick. And I said, that may have been true, that for the patients you saw in the hospital six or eight months ago, but that's not the case now because now it appears that the, the vaccine is actually having a negative effect. Well, yeah, but you know, every single bad virus has been eliminated by a vaccine. And I said, well, what about influenza? Well, that's just because it mutates. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's exactly the problem with COVID is because, I mean, and then I said, and then I'm like, okay, I got to dial this back because I'm not going to get in an argument because the bar closed. So what am I going to do? <laughs> so, so then I said, okay, well, answer me this question then, because this has been actually really troubling to me is, you know, we have a clinic where we've treated tons of people with monoclonal antibodies. It's really effective. Um, and it appears to be in, in exceptionally safe. And we've had those for over a year. I said, how come only we, this is supposed to be such an unbelievably serious pandemic and the only treatment was vaccine. And we weren't 
giving monoclonal antibodies to people at 7-Eleven. You get a Slurpee, you get a COVID test, you get a monoclonal antibody, like whatever it takes, because it's so bad. It's like fighting a war on the virus. Remember Trump saying that? And if we're fighting a war on a virus, it's like any other war. You don't fight it just with your Navy. You fight it with your Navy, your Army and your Air Force. We're only fighting it with the Navy. And she just looked at me and she goes, I don't know. But get vaccinated. And, I, and I'm like, I mean, it's somebody with similar experience to me, you know, 25 years of medical practice. And I'm like, there is it's cowardice and groupthink. And I don't want to be the outlier and I don't want to be the mole that gets whacked. And we just finally got to a point about a year ago where we just stopped giving a shit. I mean, that's really what it was. It's like if they take our license, if they take our board certification, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to go through that. I'm not going to intentionally throw bombs or grenades at the Oregon Medical Board. But you know what? If it happens, then I guess it's not worth much. Right. Right. You're at the point in your career when you can retire on a low budget. No problem. Hey, I'm, I'm up to be hired at any wine bar if anybody's hired. <laughs> if I was hiring in a, at a wine bar, I, you'd, you'd get in at a heartbeat. Man. Sommelier coming to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys. You guys are just so charming and good natured and think the best of everyone. I, I think we've got uh, a, a real problem on our hands. I hope that the I hope our system down here can hold up enough to get us new elected representatives in the next uh, you know few months and, and three years from now or two years from now or whatever it is. And I hope hope that these uh, these lawyers can uh, can make some money on this and destroy these companies because they're they are uh, evil. I mean, it's a, it's a sad thing. And I, I don't, I can't, I can't imagine these idiots who are still baiting the details. I mean, I read it. Robert Malone is, is I've got more respect for him than almost anyone in this, in this uh, uh, fight. And he put a post in there uh, two or three days ago that was more in the weeds. And I thought, well, what the heck, why are we talking about that? We should be talking about how we get back at these people who, who've taken us into, into this, uh, this war. And it's anyway, so, I, know. I, I just think, you know, with all that's going on in the world and people even talking about what's going on between Ukraine and Russia and the corruption. And I'm like, look in your own backyard, like yeah. what's going on right here. Well, I saw a very brief um, interview segment. Uh, I think it was like a, a, a preliminary thing for uh, when Harvey Risch was on Steve Bannon's show. And man, that was an awesome episode. That was what a week or two ago. And, and, you know, when we interviewed uh, Peter McCullough, that was May of 2021. That's early. That's fantastic. Yeah, we, and, and he I, was, Joe, can I say, we, how the heck did he figure all that first. stuff out? You What's did. That? I know. Yeah. We had him before Rogan. I mean, Rogan owes us at least everybody. 20 million downloads, I figured. But that's, <laughs> that's besides the point. So the, the thing that was interesting is, you know, he's always very measured. He was, he was always, that's right. You know, we're here to treat patients. We're mm -hmm. not here to, you know, kick the hell out of the government i think the cdc gets information and has a lot in their they because it's a bureaucracy they have a really hard time synthesizing it in real time whereas we're seeing patients so we're making you know clinical judgments in real time and he was very gracious to these to, to this and then of course you know his fame grew he treated more patients he's continued to research this more and more and more and more he started to see this 
you started to see what happened to the vaccines mm -hmm. as far as the failures, the cover-ups, the whatever. And he comes out in this interview and, and he's like, no, no, this is worse than any war we've been in in the last 40 years. Like, Millions of unnecessary fatalities worldwide. I mean, it's incredible. This corruption is so deep. Yeah. This is more disruptive to the United States than any war we've ever fought ever in the history of the country because it goes to the root of every single major institution that we need to trust. And I was like, holy crap, what happened to yeah. Peter? <laughs> he saw the light. You know? Yeah. Well, guys, um, I really appreciate your time today. Is there any other uh, theme you want to touch on briefly or anything else you want to say? Do you want to talk about uh, Florida and changing geography or or is this uh, not related to the topic at hand? And all Well, that? me always wants to talk about Florida and changing geography. So we, we've lived in the woods, uh, which has been really great for, you know, until it wasn't. Uh, for the last uh, 28 years, I was able to have my own motocross track on my property and all these good things. And um, they always wanted a kind of a house in the woods. And we got that. And now um, I get the trade because I wanted to be close, close to the mountains and close to the Columbia Gorge. And now it's time to be close to palm trees and the beach and maybe an actual restaurant. <laughs> so you you personally at your 55 or something, how old are you? I'll be 57 in three weeks. Seven. You you could still kite surf because that requires a body that's still working. I, I wouldn't even attempt that. I, I'd just break myself into pieces. I got a shoulder replacement, a total shoulder of two weeks ago. Yeah, but I saw you hanging off those holes on the, on the rock wall. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the Ryan Heath. That was, those days are over. <laughs> yeah. We actually been cleaning out stuff because we are trying to move and i think we still have some old climbing ropes and gear from the 90s too but we haven't attempted that in a long time yeah let, let, so good for you Robert. don't take a some. fall on the 35 <laughs> year year old rope though i that would really yeah i i was gonna say you know one thing that we've talked about earlier before we started recording that i would love to do another episode with you is the thing that's now happening is are people going to be wary of any vaccine having knowing what's happening with i've you know, this new technology, but now they're starting to un unearth all the data from the other vaccines, the possibility of, you know, side effects, autism, like what's in all those childhood vaccines. Should we be mass vaccine or not mass, but vaccinating kids? I never thought it was cool to vaccine kids with so much stuff at one time. You know, we took our kids in I'm like, this has got to not be good for their immune system. To, I mean, I get one or two agents at a time, but, you know, four and five things at a time. And then like what's happening with illnesses, autoimmune diseases. I'm, I'm still leery about throwing autism into that basket. But, you know, it makes you wonder now, is it vaccines? Is it the change in diet and food and all the chemicals and pesticides and crop? Review? I mean, that's definitely well, warrants taking a look. And I think it? people are going to be very wary of vaccines well the, the other thing remember occam's razor yeah. Occam's yeah. razor yeah. is the principle that says one cause is much more likely than a million causes so you know if we apply that here we've got very strong suggestions that the vaccines are involved now there's no absolute proof but the case reports of the children falling down on the floor and banging their head forever and never talking again after getting one of these 75 in, uh, pediatric injections that are now required. And when I was a kid, there were like 
18 or something like that. And the other thing that's obvious to everyone who has a brain is that these diseases were all decreasing radically and almost asymptotically towards the bottom of a curve of having no disease. And down here, when the thing's already gone, they introduced the vaccine and claim that 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 was the, uh, the the cause of the improvement. So there's a, there's a lot of data, and I'm happy to come back on about that. But I better uh, study it a little better so I can. I, it's easier to write about something and quote people than it is to be authoritative and talk about it. But in a nutshell, my belief is that we should completely abandon the current vaccine schedule. That sounds radical, but it's it's actually not radical if you look at it more closely. I think it definitely needs another look at it for sure. I'm kind of more of a mindset of a not multifactorial, but that you can, your body, you know, like with disease and illness can kind of handle so many um, insults. And, and finally you add the final insult and that's the tipping point when all disaster happens. And I tell people that about whether it's migraines or allergies or illness, I'll say, you know, you know, you might say if you get headaches, you might be okay with a bit of loud noise um, and then you smell someone's perfume and you're kind of hanging in there and then you eat food that has the extra amount of histamine or tyramine and boom, you know, and then your period, like your hormonal effect comes in and boom, your then your head explodes. Was it the one thing you kind of no, it was kind of a setup, but you add all those things together and we have a massive problem and it's same for health issues, right? It's like you're obese. Well, you're doing okay, but then your blood pressure gets high and then you add in like hyperlipidemia and then you become stressed and an angry type person. And then you have the big cardiac event. So I don't, I don't know any angry fat people. I think <laughs> of the changes in health, you know, maybe autism is just one thing, but I think you know, if you're well, if you've got a whole layer of things yes. that push. You I that think way. there's another thing, though, that I would love to talk about at some point. And again, I need to research it more. But I, but I and I've thought about it a lot more since we interviewed at the end of December, Sabine Hazen, who is um, oh, yes. a gastroenterologist who is studying the gut microbiome in ways that you cannot even comprehend. It's so mind blowing. She's her labs in Ventura. We actually visited her. Um, yeah, a everybody should ago. listen to that episode. That episode is, her... it's called Eat Shit and Live. I can't <laughs> and her book is amazing and it's written for lay people and funny. But, and... but I, I think the other thing that, that is really interesting in all of this is antibiotics. Um, you know, antibiotics clearly have taken the, you know, what William Osler called pneumonia, the captain of the uh, man of death, because so many people would, you know, they get pneumonia and they die. And now it's largely an outpatient diagnosis. You go to an urgent care or your family doctor and you're just like, yeah, you got pneumonia and yeah, you're 80 and here's some antibiotics and you get better and you never go to the hospital and it doesn't kill you. So that's a good thing. But the other side is, you know, we put it into tons of veterinary, into the food supply, into herds of cattle, into every single person has to, have zithro has to have Zithromax for every sniffle they get. And you're sitting there and you're going, okay, well, antibiotics have really only been around for about 75 years. Tons of our immune system is in our gut and our microbiome. We have an explosion of, you know, you talk about autism, but we have an explosion of obesity. How much of that's due to not just McDonald's, but the fact that we have a non-biodiverse microbiome. And like literally Sabine can take, she builds these maps of subvariants of bacteria in people's stool and she can look at them and go that person's morbidly obese just by looking at their poop. she can look at your yeah your, your your microbiome typing it's like a rainbow chart it's amazing and it 
Or like it's like a DNA profile. Oh, well, on the rainbow chart is appropriate because it is June. <laughs> right. <laughs> the gay pride but, month or whatever it is. So, you know, it would be great if we had a single factor obesity cause we could treat that we could treat. Um, uh, but I, you know, the, the thing that most seems most likely to me is that our, our FDA, which is so corrupted by pharma and is also corrupted by the food industry, has encouraged this uh, lack of consumption of animal fats and more uh, carbohydrates and heavy and so that that seems more like the single cause of obesity to me in America, and it all correlates with the uh, you know all those food pyramids and all that other crap. So uh, it would be great if it was something we could treat by eating turds. <laughs> that, that's cheap, right? <laughs> Just find somebody with the right microbiome and feed that to everybody else. But it is amazing. It, it well, yeah. Well, and, and it, she it is talks like, about that too, about yeah. doing stool transplantation, which has how yeah. she got started treating C. diff, and then saw changes in, in wiping out people's autoimmune diseases. And and, and there and a lot of kids, and, yeah. uh, autism gets better, not cured, but better. Uh, emotional problems, the depression goes away. Like really, really. So uh, eat shit and live is the answer. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really is. It, but I'm not eating yours because that's just you. Yeah. <laughs> you got uh, you're, you're rendering me speechless yeah but i mean it is but it is amazing like that food pyramid thing is just like like you bring that every time you bring that See, up like, yeah bristles because on the hair on the back of my neck bristles because it's like you see these pictures of people in a movie theater or big groups of people in the 50s and no one's fat right they used right. to they used to sell weight gain potions for housewives because they were too thin and you know everyone wants marilyn monroe no one wants the skinny chick back in the that's because if you get a set of dishes from the 50s the cups are like a third the size yeah, the but, plates are yeah they the also size. you know they smoked which probably had an effect and they, they didn't ate, buy food in a box and they ate bake, bacon and eggs and they didn't drink a bunch of soda pop and 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 it's fascinating it, it just it's so amazing because we've been on a bit of a journey with a trainer uh, i just completed 16 weeks and i didn't lose tons of weight but i completely changed my body just by eating tons of protein and just continuing to exercise like it's 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 amazing like you can you can turn fat to muscle it just takes a ton of work and you have to eat right i mean it's not and, that and, hard. and get on the juice in our yeah. group it's testosterone well, and you guys prescribe that stuff don't you the bioidentical hormones makes a huge difference yes it's the best weight loss drug we've ever had, testosterone. Well, the, right. The observational studies are stunning. They continue to lose weight for a decade. Well, it increases exercise because I'm chasing May around so much that it. it, it, <laughs> it does May, May, if I was married to you, I'd chase you around too. All right. With that, <laughs> note, I think with that note, with that note, I think we better sign off here before this gets any more graphic. <laughs> you guys are, are a delight and uh, keep on being Canadians. <laughs> We it's in our blood. We can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we get together and go to Florida together sometime as families. Yeah. Come on down to our we'll create it. We'll create a little uh, commune of like minded people out there. Okay. Actually, what's already happening. <gasps> All right. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Great chatting with you again. This has been fun.